0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. As I learned from Hollis Robbins' monograph, Forms of Contention, Influence in the African-American Sonnet Tradition, there has been a long-standing skepticism of the sonnet form among Black writers and literary critics. Langston Hughes wrote that, quote, the Shakespearean sonnet would be no mold to express the life of Beale Street or Lenox Avenue, end quote. Ishmael Reed condemned sonneteering alongside ode writing as, quote, the feeble pluckings of musky gentlemen and slaves of the metronome, end quote. And yet African-American poets such as Terrence Hayes and Natasha Trethaway continue to contribute to a tradition of sonnet writing, That includes Robert Hayden, Phyllis Wheatley, Rita Dove, Amiri Baraka, and James Grothers. Today's guest is Hollis Robbins, the author of Forms of Contention. Forms of Contention was published in 2020 through the University of Georgia Press. Hollis is the Dean of Humanities at the University of Utah. Previously, she served as Dean of Arts and Humanities at Sonoma State University, Professor of Humanities at the Peabody Institute at Johns Hopkins University, and Professor of English at Millsaps College, where I had the pleasure of studying with her as an undergraduate. Hollis is also the co editor of a number of field defining books, including the portable 19th century African American women writers anthology from Penguin, the annotated Uncle Tom's Cabin from Norton, and the works of William Wells Brown from Oxford University Press. Forms of contention test the premise that a literary form such as the sonnet can offer both opportunities for reimagining society and politics and it can introduce new perils of constraint. This book captures the complexity and longevity of a vibrant tradition of black poets taking up the sonnet form to explore race, liberation, enslavement, solidarity, and abolitionism. It also invites us to find new directions for the intersection of literary formalism and African-American cultural studies. Welcome to the podcast, Hollis.
1: Very glad to be here. It's good to see you again.
0: My first question is, can you summarize for us the overall argument of forms of contention?
1: Well, I guess the overall argument um, is the first Word after the semicolon, which is influence in the African American sonnet tradition, um, and I started working on this project in 2008. It took me a very long time to get it uh, to get it published in book form. It was initially was just about reclaiming and identifying the African American sonnet tradition and just saying like look there's this long uh, history of sonnet writing by african american poets that at the time i i published the book um hadn't been there hadn't been a book length treatment of it um now there's actually two mine and another one by the uh, scholar german scholar timo muller but at the time these poems were basically being ignored. You know, you'd see a little, uh, an occasional piece about, isn't it interesting African-American poets wrote sonnets, but there wasn't a sustained um, a sustained treatment of it. And as I started writing, um, and the first time I tried, you know, sending this out to a publisher, um, the question is, well, what's your argument? And it took a long time to understand what the argument was and what I had been missing in reading scholarship on African-American poetry in general, but sonnets in specific specifically was the question of influence, right? Anybody who works in literature really works about in the notion of influence, right? What is the genealogy? What is genre, right? What does it mean to, you know, if you're a novel writer, all you're in that genre of novel writers. If you're a playwright, you know, the great, you start studying with Greek theater or um, whatever your world literature tradition is. And it became clear to me, something I sort of understood, but hadn't really articulated that scholarship on influence on African-American poetry was always influence the ways that Black poets were uh, either imitating and this was always used negatively or pushing back against white influence but the history of how black poets influenced each other had not i hadn't seen any scholarship on that and when i decided to focus on this uh, when i had been since i'd been focusing on this on the sonnet it was a really good case study to see what we do in poetry generally but hadn't been done in the in the black poetic tradition is to look at those um, streams of influence over time, and uh, I begin the book uh, with a story of of asking Natasha Trethaway, you know, the great uh, poet of the 21st century, about her use of the sonnet in her great book Native Guard. And people always say, "Why are you using this European form? Why are you using this European form?" And I called her out on it, and I said you know, look at this history of black sonnet writers. And she said, you know what? You're right. For me, it wasn't a European form. I learned the sonnet form from Gwendolyn Brooks. So that finally we look at, and we've had an, uh, a sort of recognition of, and a beginnings of, I like to think, uh, a conversation about um, about influence in black poetry.
0: I think that, that flows really well into my next question, which is well, one of the things I admired about Forms of Contention is how situated it is in discourse, the trethaway of story that you just mentioned. I think Nathaniel Mackey is, is a poet mm. who's also discussed right. with the, the themes and the ideas in the in the book. You discuss the history of the sonnet at poetry readings among critics and poets. You correspond with active poets thinking about influence. You follow poets and theorists as they respond, critique, and engage with each other. I, I, the ideas in the book emerge in discussion, dialogue, debate. The book has been out a couple of years. Um, how has the conversation continued to grow around forms of contingent since it was published?
1: Well, it's a, it's a good question. And uh, partly, you know, it's been slow because it came out right at the middle of COVID. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of book readings and invitations and things. And everybody, I think in a couple of cases, um, the book sat for a couple of years in somebody's mailroom because everybody stopped, you know, going to campus and and getting their mail. So I think there are people who are just now reading it. The most interesting responses or that that I'm that I'm seeing are not in black poetry though. They're in um, <clears throat> Shelley Scholars, Byron Scholars, Keats Scholars, scholars of how um, how British tradition has translated itself in American universities who suddenly were like, oh wait, I've left out the entire black tradi- tradi- tradition because they think of black poetry as Langston Hughes as modernist. So, I think my book has been a real help to um, British nineteenth, uh, eighteenth, nineteenth century British scholars, literature scholars who don't know and hadn't been aware. That there had been responses to the literature that these folks know in the black community. So, in I mean, not to put too fine a point about it, but you know, when everybody has been uh, pressured, uh, long overdue, to decolonize their syllabi and to uh, have uh, be a little bit more capacious and diverse in questions of British and American poetics you know, to be able to, to teach African-American sonnets that were responding to Keats or responding to Shelley in a classroom has been very helpful. It's been sort of starter Black poetry for uh, scholars of liter- British literature who had not dipped into Black poetry. So uh, that's been helpful.
0: Before we get into the meat of the book, I want to talk to you about your research trajectory. Your dissertation was on bureaucracy in 19th century British literature, with chapters on the mail service and Dracula, the census and Wordsworth, We Are Seven, and Dickens in the Circumlocution Office. Now you have shifted to work on African American literature in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, many of our listeners are at different stages of their academic journal journey maybe they're dissertation writers or early career professors maybe they're um, scholars who are intending to shift their research interest in a decidedly different direction what advice would you give someone uh, considering making a similar shift
1: oh well i would give it the advice of don't do it stick to what <laughs> To what you do. I mean, I had, I came to grad school late after um, I didn't get my PhD until 40. I had had a career in politics and bureaucracy. And so when I decided to go back and get my PhD, I was interested in what I was interested in, which is how is it that government functions that we're familiar with or that became familiar in the 19th century, like the post office um, or like the census, how is it that these External phenomenon manifested themselves in literature, so I was happily doing that. And Dickens, uh, Charles Dickens, who's having another day today. I mean, he's he's really sort of newly popular. Was writing about what was going on around him um, with uh, new government offices and new bureaucracies. So you know, it just seemed natural to read a lot of a lot of Dickens and. Um, One day, uh, I've told this story several times, I was getting the New Yorker magazine um, and uh, waiting for my kids at the school bus, and uh, Henry Louis Gates had found uh, this narrative uh, called the Bondswoman's Narrative written he thought, and and the manuscript it had been never published. He found it, at, he bought it at an auction. There really wasn't a lot of apparatus about this person, this author, Hannah Crafts, who had written this novel. Um, and he published excerpts of it before it came out as a, as a book in the New Yorker magazine. And he said, you know, she's a great writer. Look how she, you know, look how she describes living in Washington, D.C. And the paragraph was, you know, gloom, gloom everywhere, gloom as it rolls over the Thames or something like that. And I'm reading this at the bus stop um, waiting for my kids. And I was like, that's the second paragraph of Bleak House. Fog, fog everywhere, fog where it rolls over the Thames. And I'm like, oh my God, this is odd. So, like, the bus came, my kids um, leave. And I was like, wait a second, I gotta, you know, go inside, kids. I've got this, I've got to figure out what's going on here. And there was a second excerpt that he has in the New Yorker where she had described uh, the slave huts where she had lived in incredible squalor. And I'm reading this and I didn't have it memorized, but, you know, I pulled my copy of Bleak House off the shelf and I thumbed to the place where Dickens talks about the London slums, Tom All Alones. And I realized that she, this author, was describing, um, using his language to describe the the London, to, to describe the slave huts. And nobody had noticed this in the New Yorker. And I had, um, worked there years ago. So I had some phone numbers and I called some people up. I'm like, you guys miss this in the New Yorker. And 10 minutes later, I was on the phone with Henry Lewis Gates Jr., like the most important black scholar in America. You know, I'm in my fourth year of a PhD program. And he said, I'm going to send you the manuscript. It's going to go to press in two weeks. I want you to tell me everything that you found that she's cribbed. And I did. I found that she had cribbed some uh, Jane Eyre, some Walter Scott, some more Dickens, and you know he was like, I sent this manuscript around to every person writing about African American literature in America, and nobody caught this. How is it that you caught it? And I'm like, because I'm studying Dickens, I'm not studying black literature. And you know we've worked together now for uh, over 20 years. We're we're doing a book together now on Phyllis Wheatley. And what has become interesting about this, and you know, my field has now become African American literature. And it took me, as as we have talked about, a long time to find a job. Um, that the African American literature that, as a field, has late come to the question of influence, like what has influenced African American literature. And this is a long and complex story that really begins in the 60s at a time of the Black arts movement. At the same time, the formation of Black studies um, departments in universities, so that the creation of Black studies and Black literature in universities came at a time where Amiri Baraka was insisting on deracinating the entire field from its roots, right? So that the curriculum started at a place that let us look at black literature apart from its influences so it really has taken 50 years for the field to say wait a second let's go back and look at those influences
0: one of the things i see your book doing is uh, complicating the idea of literary agency I, i think we've already begun to to discuss this there's a third way of understanding influence besides worshipful devotion to a receive form or the inartful bungling of a traditional genre. Um, something you call alternately a refusal or a, an act of participation and protest or the overthrow and undermining of aesthetic expectation. Uh, this might be a good place to dig into your engagement with June Jordan's critique of what this sonnet signifies and asks. How does your study of the African-American sonnet give us a fresh understanding of influence?
1: Well, so she, you know, she and Jude Jordan is, of course, great and, you know, was was writing at a time, again, with that that moment of deracination, like, can we look at the at Black arts and the Black tradition without influence? And it's it, it was always an interesting question to me. Um, And I, you know, at the beginning of my book, I sort of situate Amiri Baraka's, you know, Black Arts um, Manifestos the entire Black Arts Manifestos alongside uh, Harold Bloom's great book, uh, Anxiety of Influence, which, you know, had stopped being read by the time I got to grad school in the late 90s as a kind of old fashioned, you know, you know, you're always fighting with somebody you know, that you want to be like you want to be like Dante or you want to be like, you know, uh, uh, Emily Dickinson. And you you imitate and then you do something else. You overthrow. And it was a really interesting book. You know, again, when you go to grad school, there are things that are, you know, that that you do. And then there are things that you don't do anymore. And nobody was doing Bloom. But I read him and it was interesting because he's actually making the same argument that Amiri Baraka is making, which is. Uh, and June Jordan, right? June Jordan says, don't be imitative, right? Black poetry shouldn't be imitative. Um, Phyllis Wheatley shouldn't have been imitating what she was doing. Well, how can you be a poet? Like all poets, right, are are imitating in some ways. But this was a pivotal moment, you know, from, from my understanding of what the problem was in Black poetry is that because the idea would be if you're imitating anybody white, then you're not being authentically Black. And it's, you know, it's an excellent argument, but it doesn't actually include an understanding that all literature is is imitative and uh, to a certain extent. And one of the things in going back and reading Bloom is that, and this is why I wanted to focus on the sonnet. Is that um, the sonnet, you know, is is a kind of bureaucratic, and this is partly why I like it, is a bureaucratic structure. You've got 14 lines, you've got an octave, you've got a sestet. you've got some uh, rules that everybody has to follow. And so, you know, is it European? Is it outside of any ethnicity? Is it, you know, is it just a blueprint? Um, can anybody use it? Who is to say that it has a particular ethnicity in the first place? Um, And the great sonnet writers who had written about this bureaucratic structure as a cage and an imprisoning cage was one of the things that black sonnet writers uh, enjoyed about it, right? To say, I'm gonna break out of this prison. I'm going to break out of this bondage. I'm going to break out of these fetters, right, that um, poets had had long used. So it was really, um, you know, when I read June June Jordan's critique of Wheatley being imitative and using the sonnet form, I thought, you know what? This is a good jumping off place to talk about what Black sonnet writers actually saw in the sonnet. I
0: learned from your book that This kind of long arc scholarship is made possible newly by uh, these emerging technologies, which have collected black newspapers. Additionally, many African-American sonnets are studied in contexts that do not place them alongside influences like Petrarch, Shakespeare, or Dante. Um, Talk to us about the the technical uh, as well as the methodological challenges of putting together an archive for a project like this.
1: Yeah, thank you. That was another good question. So when I first met Skip, um, like, how are we going to work together was, you know, I I had to get a job I had to like, you know, all the things we met at at Millsaps College, which was my first teaching job after finishing my PhD, which was the only job I got uh, the job offer I got because nobody, I was so new to my field. Um, that Millsaps, the ad was uh, they wanted somebody who could teach Shakespeare and Black literature and African-American literature. And somehow I fit, <laughs> I fit that bill. And uh, we were, uh, he had uh, given me this sort of uh, administrative job as uh, director of the Black Periodical Literature Project. This is when I was finishing up at Princeton, which was this microfished. Incredible archive of black newspapers from 1840 to 19. Um, I think it's a hundred years. Hundred years of of, uh, of black newspapers that he had had um, turned into microfilm, uh, microfiche back in the like 70s and 80s. He had just bought this archive of newspapers crumbling, um, and this was before the internet before anything and had them in microfiche. And while I was at Princeton and taking over this project, um, you know, PDF technology was new. So I had the whole darn thing PDFed. And so, you know, I could actually, instead of going in the to the basement of Firestone Library and looking at these things, I mean, the, the first time he had wanted me to look at them was to, to see if I can find who Hannah Crafts is, back to the Bond woman's narrative briefly because the concern was maybe she wasn't an enslaved woman that was reading Dickens maybe she was some uh, somebody who was actually white and from the north and th- the, this cribbing Dickens uh, to tell the slave story um, would have a different uh, a different uh, flavor to it. It turns out actually we found this through the great work of Greg Hekim- Hekimovich, Um was also a Victorian literature scholar who went through to find her. And she was, in fact, an enslaved woman um, from all the places she said she was in this in this um, in her story. Uh, and, uh, you know, read Dickens, read and Jane Eyre, et cetera. So all the things that we found turns out to be true. Um, but I say that to to say I first encountered this Kant, con- this uh, archive because Skip wanted me to see if I could find Hannah Crafts. Which I did not, um, and I was. But that it was during reading this archive that I had uh, uh, had come across the fact that uh, Frederick Douglass had serialized in his newspaper Bleak House, um, and this hadn't been talked about in Douglass scholarship. I had not known it. None of the Douglass scholars that I knew knew it because they were reading. Frederick Douglass's newspaper for certain things, and they were ignoring the lap, the back page where he was serializing Bleak House. So it was very interesting. Anyway, in the course of reading these newspapers, I kept coming across poetry, and I'd stop and read it. And I kept coming across sonnets. And so, in the back of my mind, when I started thinking about this project, I thought, you know what, I've got all these newspapers. Let me let me go back and look to see how many of them are sonnets. And so many were. And part of their the reason that so many of these were sonnets is they fit really well at the bottom of a column as a column because they're narrow, they're square, right? And so if you're a newspaper editor or a journal editor and you've got some blank space, like sonnets are awesome, right? So part of the reason of the Black sonnet tradition is that because Black newspapers always needed <laughs> Little square poems to fit at the bottom of a column, so that was awesome. But I just started collecting them, and uh, you know there were sonnets on King Tut. There were black sonnets on um, uh, on boxers and boxing matches. There were sonnets on Edgar Allan Poe, like T. Thomas Fortune, like wrote sonnets on Ed- Edgar Allan Poe, and these things had never been republished. And in fact, I have archives of them that, you know, when I was publishing my book, I thought I'd have a companion book of all of these sonnets. Um, and they were like, nah, mm-hmm. not yet. So, you know, eventually I'm going to do this, just hundreds of these, you know, some of them are bad. But, you know, to understand that that a Black poet is writing sonnets on um, on Keats, uh, on on. All sorts of things. Uh, and on Chaucer, there is like a sonnet on Chaucer. I should find that and send that to you. So it was. Um, yes, that's the archive story.
0: It also seems, and and the the Hannah Craft story, I think fits this as well. The the virtues of having like a hundred and eighty degree perspective, not being so narrowly focused in on in on an archive or a field, and the benefits of that, right?
1: Well, and and I will give another shout out to my friend, Greg Hegamovich. So I was finishing up at Princeton. He was at East Carolina University. So when we were trying to figure out who Hannah Crafts uh, is, was um, there was a collection of letters from the family of somebody who had owned Hannah Crafts that she talks about in her book that were at East Carolina University because the, the book takes place mostly in North Carolina. And I couldn't get down there. I had kids. I was finishing up things. So I called the English department there and I said, like, does anybody want to go over to the library and see if there are, could you read these letters? And so Greg, you know, emailed me back and said, sure, I'm not doing anything like that sounds interesting. And he's a he's a Victorianist, right? He was a Victorian literature scholar. So he went over to these to these um to the archives. And he just became fascinated with, you know, mid 19th century American antebellum slave owning letters. And he said, you know, this is actually more interesting than what I'm doing. And so I I cited him at the, at the end of my book with Skip Gates on In Search of Herodic Crafts. I said, at this moment of going to press, Greg Hekimovich is looking to see whether um, the writer, was part of this extended family. Anyway, 10 years later, he finds her. Like he actually went through the archives um, and he has made a career on Hannah Crafts. If you Google him, like his entire career is on Hannah Crafts, which he wasn't expecting either, right? He wasn't expecting being trained in a Victorianist. He would write the most important book on... The first real work of um uh, fictionalized uh fictionalized uh, escape narrative uh by a black woman by an actual enslaved woman in the nineteenth century
0: and maybe that would be great advice for all of us is when you get a cold call email about some fascinating archive, just go just say just yeah. go,
1: yeah Do just it. go. Right. And he's I mean, he was he came through uh, Salt Lake City a couple uh, last week. Actually, and we went out and had had uh, had drinks together. And it was it was so interesting because he said, you know, like, we've only met in person three times in 20 years. But our careers have have uh have really hovered around her. Right. You know, I find something in The New Yorker. I call up. He does something else. And, you know, bringing a new work um to scholarship and understanding you know how it was and again her herself how it is that this um enslaved woman encountered charles dickens and helped her write a story of her life is a is a story of influence
0: your second chapter is on suffering, love, bondage, and protest. You you take uh, a line from Philip Sidney's Sonnet 47, I think it is, Am I Born a Slave? And then kind of reanimate that influence. Can you talk to us a little bit about that chapter?
1: Well, and so in beginning to think about like, what is a sonnet? And we all know this from like Brit Lit 101, right? Like, You know, in the 12th century, the sonnet was born in Italy with Petrarch, and they all had these beloveds, right, whether it was Beatrice or Laura or what have you, right? And she was a fair maiden. And these poets would be like, you know, you fair maiden, you are so beautiful, you are so fair. Uh, I am slave to being in love with you. And then, you know, the turn, that's the octave, like, this is my problem." And then the turn would be, "But I got work to do. I got stuff. And even if you love me, it would be really hard. So goodbye, right. And so, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these um, of these sonnets were written. And in sort of returning to the sonnet roots um in thinking about, Again, I didn't write this linearly. I started with this archive. I started with these questions. I just started like, what is this? And going back, I was just like, oh, these sonnets are about slavery, right? Because everybody talked about being in love as being yoked, as having fetters, as being enslaved. Um, And then the Dunn's holy sonnets were about being beaten up. Right, and about survival, and about what does it mean to love and being beaten up beaten up? And I kept thinking, oh MG, this is you know, the resonances here. And, and and at what point in time does enslavement go from metaphorical to literal? And how do we think about that? Um, you know, and, and when the sonnet comes to America especially in the 19th century when slavery is on everybody's mind in, in literature classes, you know, do poets studying this notice, right. That, that they're talking about enslavement and, you know, can you stay in the truly metaphorical at a moment where abolition Um, is in the news. So, you know, I I thread that through and um, maybe this is a good time to read the Baugh poem.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, that would be wonderful.
1: Um, So Edward Baugh, who's this Jamaican poet that I had found I don't remember where I first read this poem. Uh, you know, he's this Jamaican poet. And uh, in the 1960s, a little bit before the Black arts movement, you know, he writes this sonnet that I, uh, I'll i read um, called There's a Brown Girl in the Ring, which is a popular Jamaican children's song that you can, you know, Google and see many versions of it. And he, you can tell when I read this, that he is well-versed in the Petrarchan sonnet tradition of the fair maiden, right? And the notion of the blazon, right? The blazon is the sort of poetic uh, tradition where you, you basically dissect somebody. Your eyebrows are like this, your mouth's like this, your neck's like this, right? And so he is writing a sonnet, and he, he does a bit of a blazon, but he's, he's turning it on, his, on its head. He's like, I'm going to write this sonnet as a Black man writing to a Black woman, not a, an Italian poet, uh, Italian lover to this fair maiden. So um, there's Brown Girl in the Ring, 1965. When I speak of this woman, I do not mean to indicate the muse or abstract queen, but to record the brown fact of her being the undiluted blackness of her hair, and that I lightly kissed her knee and how her feet were shy before my stare. It may be that I praise her memory here because she is indeed but allegory of meanings greater than herself or me, of which I am instinctively aware. But may such meanings never be a care for that fine head. And may my glory be that blood and brain responded well to slim, shy feet and smoothest knees and most black hair. And That's by Edmund Baugh. And it's such a great poem.
0: Yeah, what, what, uh, what aspects of the poem really uh, resonate with it?
1: Well, the the idea that, you know, he's talking about the muse, he's talking about an abstract queen, and he's saying that's not what this woman is, right? She's not but an allegory of meanings greater than herself, that he is going to bring this sort of uh, metaphysical love of the Petrarchan poetic sonic tradition down to the ground, Right. And he's going to say, this is not how you talk about a woman. But, you know, he could just do that. So why does he say, this is not this? This is not this. Right. Because he wants to situate his sonnet. And it's a 14 line sonnet. Right. You don't, when you read a sonnet, you're not reading that poem alone. You're reading it in the context of every other sonnet writer ever. Right. It's bold. You know, it's like, I'm belonging to this, this sonnet club. And this is, uh, you know, when there are readings of this poem, they are usually readings like about the children's song. There's a Brown girl in the ring. It's not about why is this poet in this tradition and why is he pushing back? And he says, this is not how you write about a woman. I know how you wrote about a woman. This is how I write about a woman. And if you don't understand that history you don't understand what he's trying to do and so anybody you know in the whole discourse that you know that that uh poets that write in european forms are being imitative ba's poem is pushing back he's like i'm not imitating I'm not imitating, I'm taking your tradition and I'm literally turning it on its head because it starts with a, a sestet and ends with an octave. It doesn't start with an octave and end with a sestet. So again, it's very smart, but you have to understand that tradition. Otherwise you're you're not giving him his due.
0: That's excellent. And I love that formalist um, kind of analysis of, of reversing the, the stanzas. Um, and I think you you do a similar thing with uh, the the lynching, um in, in terms of the choice to use a Shakespearean form yeah. instead of a Miltonic form.
1: And I, I, I would read that poem, but it's not really a very good sonnet. But the, you know, here is Claude McKay writing sonnets about lynchings. Right. And he's writing sonnets about lynching in the sort of model of Milton sonnets against um, you know, against uh, Catholic Protestant. Um, uh, raging battles, right? And, you know, Milton's protest sonnets are Protestant, right, are literally protest, right? Uh, And, um, you know, Milton begins, I mean, there were some protest sonnets back in Petrarch's day, but really Milton begins this idea of the sonnet as a political tool, which Shelley does again in uh, uh, 1819, his sonnet, his great sonnet on, on George, uh, the mad, bad, and dying king, right? So that we see the romantic protest sonnets coming out of the Milton sonnet and so, and um, uh, Claude McKay, the great uh, writer of the great sonnet, If We Must Die, um, has sonnets on lynching that are in this Miltonic tradition and when he ends his sonnets or he's very attuned to not ending them with a Shakespearean couplet, which is you know, let me sum up and you know, but in a Miltonic, I'm going to protest, but this sestat, this this um, non-easily rhyming end of the poem means that um, we don't have a resolution. There is no resolution to the problem of of, of uh, lynching in America. And again, I will say that you know one of the things that took such a long time for me to finish this book is I would give talks about this, and when I'd be talking to largely um, audiences of of uh, scholars of black poetry, they were like, you know, I don't understand this, um, like why are you going to Milton? What does Milton have to do with us? And when I would go to uh, other uh, audiences that were more you know Milton or Shelley uh, uh, scholars, they were like, but that's not Claude McKay isn't really doing this well enough he doesn't really understand his milton right so that there, there was these two scholarships that were so far apart that were really hard for me to wrench together and i'm not even sure i've done it well
0: i i, th- I think you've you've done it well and that's something i well, want to return to is is the the way formally you've put those conversations together um the the third chapter looks at what I, I i would call the 18th and 19th century shift of the sauna into radical politics i don't know if if i'm capturing your argument um perfectly there please uh, well
1: and it, like when even when i was i dedicate this bu- the, my book to, to henry lewis gates to skip because he's been such an influence on my life and um you know we've we've worked so well together um He's not a big reader of poetry as poetry, right? And um, part of our discussions. And I did a, a talk, a Zoom talk at uh, at Harvard a year and a half ago on the book. And you know, again, there's a question of what what is influence, right? How how does how does the the form of something predate? Uh, the thing, right? there's a there's a great line from the um uh, Czechoslovakian playwright. No, she's not Czechoslovakian, but Irene Fornes um on her on a play called The Danube, where she has this line, um, the trousers that a little boy is wearing are in the shop window before he was born right which i which i love that right that the things that are going to end up um that we use that we create that we we make our own were invented before we were so you know is that influence or is that just a structure that i'm entering into and you know black poets african american poets did not see form as influencing them it's like this is the container that i'm going to use and so i'm going to use it and so the the fact of throwing out that container in the late 60s and onward um you know we've never had a discussion or there hadn't been really a discussion they um uh houston baker again from in the 70s and 80s talked about early black poets as you know black content in white envelopes, right? That's what poetry was before the 1960s, black content in white envelopes. And that was really a disservice to understanding what these poems were trying to do. Or he'd talk about formal poetry, black formal poetry as mastered masks, right? And you see how through Dunbar and others, the mask metaphor, um, which is very important, allows sort of the throwing out of uh, poetry that they thought is not authentic, it's masked. And so uh, it actually has been fun talking to Skip and sort of saying, look, this is what's going on here.
0: Well, I I love this investment in formalism, you know, formalist analysis. Um, Has that always been a, a key feature of your practice?
1: Well, it's. I mean, if you think about it as a bureaucracy, right, like, you know, when you're addressing an envelope, if anybody still uses the actual mail, right, there's, the, the, there's these forms that you follow, right, you know, even with your email or a signature line, right, there are there forms exist and forms do structure and channel our communication um, in ways that, you know, I think asking, you know, at what point in time is the form overly influential Right, this is what network analysis is, et cetera. But there's, um, uh, you know, it's very interesting in modernist discourse in you know 1910 to you know 1950 in poetics generally. Right, is like don't use iambic pentameter. Right, and iambic pentameter da 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 da. Right, structures you. Right, and you know this from from your field. Right, you know, like iambic pentameter is the thing that you use. And in um, 19th century America and this sort of late 19th century um, drive to educate the middle class, part of the reason that school children were asked to recite Shakespeare was to get, you know, to, was to get rid of regional accents, to get rid of regionalisms and speech patterns, and to get people to start speaking uh, in, you know, in, in, in iambic pentameter. So very much in the 20th century, the modernist movement was not to write in iambic pentameter. And then there was a a number of like black theorists who were like, no, you need to write in in trochees. So it's more like drum beats, right? There's just all this stuff on, on meter. Um, and the sort of rejection of iambic pentameter in, um, uh, in, in, uh, support of more, um, tetrameter or blues, like, you know, the blues or the, uh, uh, the blues idioms, um, four, three, four, three, or four, four, whatever, um, was another reason that sonnets were rejected because they were, um, iambic pentameter, which also doesn't lend itself to, to, to singing.
0: I I think one of the, um, aspects of your book that's going to be really helpful are the the charts throughout the book of the catalog, all of the sonnets that you've you've discovered. Um, you you sort of uh, the, the late 19th century comes in for for some uh, disparagement in, in in your book. Um, can you talk to us about the I guess the long 19th century? Robert Southie even earlier Phyllis Wheatley and then the late 19th century maybe the nadir of the sonnet tradition
1: right. yeah. well it's 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 sad because you know after abolition and I mean after emancipation when you really see um you know when when finally the establishment of black universities of Fisk of Wilberforce right of Howard of you know so suddenly you've got generations of uh of of newly emancipated African Americans going to college and what are they reading right at Fisk particularly that you know Fisk had this great romantic poetry uh, faculty right you'd so you'd be reading your Shelley you'd be reading your Byron Byron was hugely popular um, you'd be reading your Shakespeare right and um, so you know this new literary. Uh, movement among, you know, with black newspapers, with um, black reading groups, with, you know, African-American literature, literary circles. um, You know, I don't want to say that it was behind, right, but it was lagging where scholarship had been elsewhere, right? So um, there was a way that as you know, as there was a turn for modernist, modernism, um, with, uh, mainstream white poets, you know, black sonnets, black writers were still, you know, reading Shelley. <laughs> so there's a, there's a way that, you know, T.S. Eliot throws out romanticism and throws out um in in uh support of of going to the metaphysical poets and done and um you know not of a lot of uh, getting rid of emotion in writing um and that the best poetry is not emotional and doesn't play on the emotions at a time where uh, you know in black universities and black colleges and universities um we're very steeped in the body and the romantic so you see uh and this isn't you know other people are, are beginning to work on this there's um a book coming out um, by uh uh Chris Rovey on on what happens to romantic poetry in American universities which I think is very interesting about like how Shelley ha- is is taught in American universities at different places how Austin how Byron is um and shows the sort of mismatch of what's happening at HBCUs and what's happening elsewhere. I didn't realize, I didn't answer the question about anthologies. So there's an anthologizing uh, movement. There's an anthologizing movement that begins in the 1920s with James Weldon Johnson, where he says all right, we're going to have books that are about black poetry. We're going to have anthologies of black poetry, and we're going to have these to be taught in schools in segregated schools in HBCUs so that our school children can see all the cool things that we've written and done. And there are just, you know, there's, it's a real tragedy that we, that there are two university systems, right. And, uh, you know, that when you go to the archives of Fisk or Howard or um, Wilberforce or um, some of these great colleges, you see a whole different history of scholarship, right? So after, you know, Brown v. Board and uh, at the end of, of, of segregation and after the civil rights in the 60s, um, you know, and in the, the creation of Black Studies, uh, departments and predominantly white universities, it's almost as if the study starts there. And so all of these anthologies that like I looked for and found anthologies of black poets and black literature are just completely ignored. Right. And so I was looking in those anthologies to find sonnets, and and I did, and I you know I chart out you know, whose sonnet was where and who read what and who influenced something. But But the larger issue is that these anthologies, with the exception of James Weldon Johnson's, are entirely forgotten. And they're a real testament to a community in America. Dedicated, dedicated to uh, documenting and praising, and uh, you know, ensuring the continued teaching of this work, and then they've completely gone.
0: I found your book very artful in the way that it uh, balances a diachronic story of development, or or conversation, or influence, um, but not in a strictly linear way. So you put you put Shakespeare in conversation with Claude McKay and Philip Sidney in conversation with Gwendolyn Brooks and Dante and Petrarch in conversation with Edward Ball. Um, it seems that the form of that second and third chapter, in some ways, is a difficult or is is a distillation of the difficult work of the project as a whole. Uh, how do you conceptualize the literary form of your own work in, in those two chapters?
1: It was, those were so hard to write and I would, the advice that I would give to anybody who's writing a book, um, you know, cause I, I, yes, thank you for putting it that way because it wasn't a linear book. It was a book about influence, but I had to start by saying the problem is we're not looking at influence. What is influence? What is form? What does it look like? And so I have I have like these two or three chapters of basically exposition, like what are the problems? Let, let me list the problems here. The problems are that we don't know what form is. The problems is that we're looking at things in a different way. The problem is we, you know, that imitation becomes this bad word, right, In in black poetry. So I have to set out for anybody who's not studying black poetry that this fact exists, right? So I have to lay out all of these facts. And then I don't feel like I get going until um, until my sixth chapter, where and I, you know, I end. This is the sad thing about my book. I was really hoping to go up to the present. I was hoping to talk about Natasha Trethaway. I was hoping to talk about Terrence Hayes, right? Who is the sonnet greatest sonnet writer living? Right, he is so good, and but I, I, I barely get up to read a dove. Right in the nineteen nineties, or Yusef Kamanyaka, right, or these great sonnet writers who in the in the eighties and nineties are returning to this form. Rita Dove is probably the first and best to say, we're not gonna throw out everything. As Amiri Baraka wanted to do. So in my sixth chapter, I talk about the Black Arts movement. I talk about the Fisk Writers Conference of, of, of 1967 and 68. I talk about how Amiri Baraka says, uh, like Robert Hayden, the great sonnet writer uh in Black poetry, says, like, I'm I'm here as a poet, I'm not here as a black poet. And you know, Amiri Baraka says, you know, leave, you're not part of us, you're not one of us, right? And so this is a tension that happens over and over again. But, you know, Gwendolyn Brooks says, yeah, maybe I've written too many sonnets. Maybe I'll just stop writing sonnets, right? And, you know, everything sort of stops for a while, but she keeps writing sonnets. Sonnets keep getting written because the history is too important to be forgotten. And, and it's too robust to be thrown out. Um, and again, you know, the way I begin the book with Trethaway, well, I had to nudge her acknowledging that she learned the sonnet from Gwendolyn Brooks. It is a Black form by now. And if, if anybody is making that case, it is Terence Hayes.
0: Let's talk about Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, your sixth chapter titled Power Lines examines the effects that the rise of the Black aesthetic movement had on the sauna. Um, as you show that this movement has various goals to encourage international solidarities between Black people and to reject traditional literary forms. And then there's Gwendolyn Brooks, who's <laughs> Yeah. I mean, right?
1: Well, and so I I taught um from a street in Bronzeville from her book from that won the Pulitzer in 1945. There's a sec- section of it called um Gay Chaps at the Bar, which is that I just did a, a a seminar um uh at the National Humanities Center where you know they bring uh high school uh teachers in to sort of, and this was a a teaching workshop on teaching Black, 20th century Black women writers in the classroom. So I did, my thing was on Gwendolyn Brooks. And what I focused on was this sonnet sequence in Gay Chaps at the Bar, which is a series of sonnets um, written about Black soldiers and their experience writing and fighting in World War II. And um, I mean, it's extraordinary, but she's writing in the form of a of a man, of a black of a black man soldier. And you know, if you think about the battles today of who has the right to say this, about this, or whatever, what I had a a guy that in in the seminar who was in the air force for twenty five years. He retired. He decided he wanted to be a teacher. So, you know, has started being a teacher and was so so happy to come to this seminar and just dig into some of the the works that he wanted to start teaching. And he was just fascinated, like, of Gwendolyn Brooks' boldness, not just that she's writing sonnets, but she's writing sonnets in the voice of a Black male soldier, right, which You know, talking about being battle scarred, talking about the trauma, talking about the inability uh, to articulate what it was to be at war and segregation and to leave one war and come home to America to another segregation war. And he said, you can't, you just couldn't do this today. Right. Right a woman can't do this today. And she did this. And the fact that it was a sonnet was like the least bold thing about that. But she used the sonnet form to be sort of conservative about putting her work and this work about military in the context of the larger poetic tradition. Anyway, it was just horrible what uh, Baraka trying to say, no, you shouldn't be using this form anymore.
0: Alice, I think you're going to read an Amiri Baraka poem?
1: Well, one, one of the sort of startling things and, you know, reading this, this moment in the 60s, and Amiri Baraka, who's a fantastic poet, um, his place in it, you know, I started, you know, reading his work to say, like, I bet you wrote a sonnet. I bet you wrote a sonnet. In fact, he's written two. And now they don't look like sonnets. They're kind of raggedy. But I'm going to read one um, that's called Epistrophe for Yodo. Um, I think it's from 1961. So it's it's you know a little bit before. But when I read it, um you will hear some of the sort of key words from the Petrarchan and Shakespearean position, uh, tradition, which is like the sun, um, which is you know the the beautiful fair maiden, which is um about walls and buildings and towers, right? Because the the idea is the fair maiden is in the tower and you can't get her and yet, but it's okay because you're not really sure you want her and your life's a mess, blah, blah, blah. So when you think about that tradition, when I read this poem, you'll, you'll realize he's in this tradition. He just doesn't want to admit it. Okay, epistrophe. It's such a static reference looking out the window all the time, the eye's limits, on good days, the sun. And what you see here in New York, walls and buildings, or in the hidden gardens of opulent queens, profusion, endless stretches of leisure. It's like being chained to some dead actress, and she keeps trying to tell you something horribly maudlin, E.g., the leaves are flat and motionless. What I know of the mind seems to end here, just outside my face. I wish some weird-looking animal would come along. And it's, you know, it's got 14 lines, right? It's got allusions to the towers and walls and windows and the sun. And there's that great line, right, it's like being chained to some dead actress. And to me, that is in some ways, the condition of sonnet writers, right? You're being chained, right? And that the, the, the idea of bondage and chains and prisons comes up all the time in sonnets, you're chained. And the sort of dead actress, right, is this, is this image of this uh, beautiful woman and you're chained to this form. And uh, and I should say this is male sonnet writing tradition, right? Um and Gwendolyn Brooks and Natasha Trethewey push back on that a little but but it's you know he is engaging with that tradition in a 14-line poem whether you like it or not. So uh you know it's it's too helpful a tradition for poets to toss out.
0: That's wonderful. And um for for readers who who don't have it in front of them, it the lines go. It's like being chained to some dead actress semicolon uh, and she keeps trying to tell you something horribly maudlin. E.g. and then there's in quotation marks the leaves are flat and motionless. So that seems like uh, um, an interesting way of of voicing needing to voice the cliche, you know, right. like a poem in in. Yeah, chooses to eternalize the thing that it's saying is maudlin and boring and tried, you know. In um, in that that those final two lines, that's a wonderful way to end a poem. I wish some weird looking animal would come along. Right,
1: it's yeah. so interesting, and I, I'm looking here to the to the um, to the poem to um, keats's poem where he actually talks he says to these dead leaves i no longer want to be chained right which is how keats talks about um breaking i'm i can't believe oh yeah um yeah if by if by dull rhymes our english must be chained right where he talks about the um this is the Keats' sonnet called On the Sonnet, right? That begins, if by dull rhymes, our English must be chained. And then later on he says, you know, jealous of dead leaves, right? Where the leaf is the piece of paper, the leaf is, you know, you're being chained to this tradition of dead leaves, right? So it's, you know, Baraka knows this, right? He knows he knows exactly what he's saying in that line that, that you just read, right? E.g. the leaves are flat and motionless,
0: and Keats must be referring to Milton there, because chain right. to rhyme that's um, from paradise, lost in the leaves, you know, the, the, the fallen angels as leaves. Exactly. Also a reference to Virgil. So there's just this great. Right,
1: right. What you're always poetry is always a river, right? And, you know, Barack is like, we're going to make our own river. Can you do that? Can you actually do that? Right. And he is doing exactly what Bloom says. Right, you you want to fight your tradition. You don't want that tradition. You want to break free and do the whole thing, but you're still ex- engaging with it in a in a really painful way. But yes, Virgil, uh, you know, through to to Shakespeare, to Milton, to uh, to Keats, to Baraka, and you know, getting back to you know what it is we do in the classroom, right? And and where I think the importance of my 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 book, but this way of thinking, not just my book, is that if if you respect African American poetry, right? There's there's what's happening now, right? There's the uh, the sort of synchronic, you know, you know what what is happening today, and what is what are these particular poems like Claudine, uh, Claudia Claudia uh, Rankine's Citizen, right? What are poems today responding to? but there's a way that what is so awesome about Terence Hayes is he's responding to things now, but in writing to the sonnet, he's also putting himself in that tradition of writing about things over time. You know, that's what Virgil is doing. That's what Milton is doing. That's what Chaucer is doing, right? That's what Keats is doing. And, you know, the ways that black poets really, you know, kind of got Keats, as the non-college educated, the Cockney poet, right? They were like, oh, I see that. That's what I would have been had I been there, right? And if you aren't taking that tradition into account, then you're not actually respecting the work of these poets.
0: Yeah, maybe we can uh, spend a few more minutes on on Terence Hayes, who is probably the most famous sonneteer of the 21st century. Oh, he's so good. Yeah, and it, so
1: he, he came out to Salt Lake City this past fall. It was kind of embarrassing for me, I have to say, because I'm a dean, right? I'm supposed to be all, you know, formal. And and it was just like being a school kid. Like I put a copy of my book in my, ba- in my bag, right? To go to dinner with him. And I'm like, can I talk? And I was just sort of asking him all sorts of questions about influence, about who was his influence and, and the notion of influence. And we were sort of at this dinner table after this reading. And his reading was just amazing. And he kind of looks at me, and goes like, Dean, <laughs> Hollis, you know, there's grad students everywhere around the table. I'm actually supposed to be talking to them. And I'm like, uh, yeah, fine. I said, but I happen to have a copy of my book here. <laughs> so I gave him a copy and he hasn't written back yet. But it was, you know, it was so, what was so nice for me, just reading his book, is that I knew from his book how deeply read he was in the sonnet tradition and how, you know, he he hasn't said this, he hasn't published this, but to say that, you know, he's fully aware that to every sonnet is about the sonnet tradition at some point. It is about participating in that, in that lineage of influence. It is about understanding the language of, of, as you were, you know, as we were just saying, of dead leaves, right? Of chains, of yokes, of feather fetters, of protest, of what does a Shakespearean end mean versus an open-ended end uh, mean? Um, that that language, that that bureaucratic structure, is always, always um, in his front of mind.
0: If um, if a listener wanted to go seek out. Some sonnets in this tradition. What, what are what are three sonnets that they should start with?
1: We haven't talked about Paul Dunbar, so let me just quickly say Paul Dunbar's great sonnet, Robert Gould Shaw, is just an extraordinary work. And Paul Dunbar has had such a bad reputation in uh, in the academy because so much of his work. Uh, is dialect. And, um, you know, James Weldon Johnson, in his first book of, you know, the Af- of African-American literature, the first anthology, um, sort of said, like, Paul Dunbar's great, but all of this minstrelsy, dialect work, is embarrassing. We kind of have to stop, right? So, you know, he's been kind of thrown out gene jarrett has a has a great new biography out on paul dunbar that is brilliant and it really gets at the rich complexity of paul dunbar's short life and the fact that he was you know he read oliver goldsmith right he read his his keats he read everything and like he's got this poem called the deserted plantation which is, you know, the deserted, what's the, what's it called? The Goldsmith poem, The Deserted Village, right? That you can see Oliver Goldsmith has this great poem called The Deserted Village, right? Which is a really important poem about, you know, people leaving the country to go to the city. And nobody reads, you know, Paul Dunbar's The Deserted Plantation against this really important British poem, but he did, right? anyway. we have a lot of, we have the letters that Paul Dunbar wrote to his wife, Alice uh, Dunbar, Moore Dunbar Nelson, um, at the time that he was really writing a lot of poetry where he'd talk about, I'm going to write a poetry, I'm writing some dialect poem, and I'm going to balance it with a sonnet. And then I'm going to write some more dialect poems. And he talked about his poetic craft and what he was trying to do. And this poem, do you want me to read this one? The That'd be great. Uh, Robert Gould Shaw. So Robert Gould Shaw, um, you know, he uh, was a. No, I'm going to read Douglas.
0: Okay,
1: I'm going to read Douglas because. um, Because you will you will note the Miltonic influences here, right? So he decides he's going to actually take the sonnet form of Milton, of, of, um, of Wordsworth, of, of this great tradition. And he's going to write about, so his, this Dunbar's poem on Douglas is Milton's sonnet on, I mean, Wordsworth's sonnet on Milton, right? So it's, um, this from 1895, I think. Um, okay. Ah, Douglas, we have fallen on evil days. Such days as thou, not even thou didst know. When thee, the eyes of that harsh long ago, saw salient at the cross of deviant ways, and all the country heard thee with amaze, not ended then, the passionate ebb and flow, the awful tide that battled to and fro, we ride amid a tempest of dispraise. Now, when when the waves of swift dissension swarm and honor, the strong pilot lieth stark. Oh, for thy voice high sounding o'er the storm, for thy strong arm to guide the shivering bark, the blast defying power of thy form to give us comfort through the lonely dark. So he's writing this at a moment like, you know, emancipation, the end of the Civil War, everything's great. And then Reconstruction ends and the rise of lynching in the last decade of the 20th century. And here's Dunbar saying, we need you, Douglas. Right. ah, Douglas, we have fallen on on. evil days. And the first line echoes the apostrophe to Milton in William Wordsworth's sonnet, London, 1812, right? Milton, thou shouldst be living at this hour, right? And this fallen on evil days is from Milton's Paradise Lost, right? So so what we see with this poem is uh, Dunbar situating Black literature and Black heroes in this larger tradition of poetry and the work of poetry in saying these are the voices we hear right now these are the voices that we need to uh put central in our poetry and he's using this um uh in this form and so when he's criticized in his dunbar i mean for his dialect poems you know he's criticized for you know doing this you know, this this form that that um and nobody reads dialect poems for influence, for illusion, and they're so rich, right? His dialect poems are are full of Shakespearean influences, right? And 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 illusions. But here, again, like with, with Baugh and there's Brown Girl in the ring, he is not imitating. He's saying, I'm gonna use this for my purposes. This is about us. This isn't imitative. This is not black content in a white envelope. This is using this envelope for what I want to do. And Dunbar is so awesome at that.
0: Excellent. I think you still owe us two more poems.
1: All right. I'm going to do at least one more, which is to follow that, which is Robert Hayden's sonnet on Douglas, right? Which is just an extraordinary, extraordinary poem and I'm hoping I can read it well the first time through but Hayden knows Douglas's poem I mean Dunbar's poem to Douglas so and this is what I mean about black poetry not being read well enough for influence right um that Hayden is not reacting to the civil rights movement or this or that I mean he is but he's reacting he's also situating his poem as a sonnet and and by the way, I should say, uh, Hayden studied with Auden in Michigan, right? And like he, you know, they were friends; they knew each other, right? And and he understood some of the, you know, the work of of what Auden's doing. So he's he's using that um, Auden's great influence. Um, to write this poem that is actually calling back to uh, Dunbar's poem, which was probably completely forgotten at the time. Okay, so let me see if I can actually read this poem first try. It's so awesome. Uh, Frederick Douglass, and it's from 1947. When it is finally ours, this freedom, this liberty, this beautiful and terrible thing, needful to man as air, usable as earth, when it belongs at last to our children, when it is truly instinct, brain matter, diastole, systole, reflex action, when it is finally won, when it is more than the gaudy mumbo jumbo of politicians. This man, this Douglas, this former slave, this Negro beaten to his knees, Exiled, visioning a world where none is lonely, none hunted, alien, this man, superb in love and logic, this man shall be remembered. Oh, not with statues rhetoric, not with legends and poems and wreaths of bronze alone, but with the lives grown out of his life, the lives fleshing his dream of the needful, beautiful thing."
0: Wonderful. Thank you. So, oh. so many terrific lines. The, the lives grown out of his life, the lives fleshing his dream of the beautiful, needful thing. Um, I, I love Hayden. It's just such a great poet. You, you've taught a whole course on Hayden, right? I
1: taught a whole course, but I will say there's there's a way that there's that, that sort of long list of things that's got sort of Dover Beach in it, right? You know, the, the, the world, I won't quote it here, but... He clearly has read, like those two sonnets go together, Dunbar's and Hayden's, right? They're like, the sonnet form is the form to praise Douglas, right? This man who himself, right writes in formal ways his entire life right his entire sort of formality you know he we we've learned now that he was the most photographed person in the 19th century and he always looks fine right because he understands form he understands presentation he understands what he needs to to represent him as and the fact that that these great Sonnets to him, or the, these great tributes to him, are in sonnet form. I think is is testament to the form. And again, this is he breaks. So I I talk about in my book how this is the the final version of um, of 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 Hayden's tribute. So the first version, which I won't read, but it's in the foot footnotes, is terrible. I mean, it's a fine sonnet. It would be like a nice sonnet. Um, and then he, he tries another, he switches words and he publishes it somewhere and it's just not great. Like it's, it's great, but it's not awesome and sublime the way this poem is. And he started reading, um, uh, George Manley Hopkins, right? Sprung r- rhythm, right? So I think, uh, I think it was, uh, Auden that puts him on Hopkins, it's like you, you need to do more interesting things with words and sound and so he just reads hopkins and he just takes this phone and he just breaks it apart and it's i don't think there's any line from the first version he doesn't change just he doesn't change the name right they're still all called three versions of frederick douglas and uh But this last version, and so when I teach these poems, right, and I teach the first one, I I hand out the first one, and they're like, yeah, this is is great. Hayden's great. Like, what a great poem. And then you say, okay, this is the importance of revision. This is the importance of revision.
0: That's a great transition into discussing your writing practice or your writing process or... Um, the strategies, techniques, do you have um writing groups or are there techniques you found useful?
1: Well, the I mean, it's funny because I, you know, my my acknowledgements page is almost as long as pages are almost as long as the book because I gave that first chapter like to just a million different people to read, and um, seriously, I mean, that, that chapter. That first chapter where I sort of set out the argument, um, you know, just give your chapters to everybody. I just, you know, when I'd get little things back and then the second chapter, which is on the history of the sonnet and the way black poets reacted to it. I gave that to every Italian sonnet (laughs) scholar I know um, who were like, you're reading this one wrong or you're reading Petrarch wrong or you're reading... Uh, Michelangelo's sonnet wrong. Are you reading done wrong? Or this is you know not understanding what I was trying to do. But I I wanted to get everything right, and so um, those two just took ten years. Everything else. By the time I got those two things down and understood that I was working um, in a place where there weren't a lot of <laughs> there weren't wasn't a lot of scholarship. Again, I, I would give people chapters. People would just say, I don't understand this. This isn't making sense to me. I would refine, refine, refine. I sent it to my publisher. So the great Walter Biggins, who's now at Penn Press, was my editor at um, was the acquiring editor at um, University of Georgia Press, and he was fantastic. So and he was so with me in this project in 2015, 2014, 15, he said, I love this. Nobody's doing this. Let me send it out. So reader A would be like, this is the best thing. We need this. She's got to write this right now. Give her an advance. And reader B was like, what is this? I have no idea. It's just a list of poems. Who cares? Right. And so he was like, just keep writing. And so i gave him the entire manuscript he sent it out again a different reader one who's like oh my god this is published this tomorrow this is like the most important book ever and reader 2 was like this doesn't make any sense different reader 2 like i don't i don't understand what's going on here it's just a list of sonnets and i don't see the argument it was at that point in time actually so this was 2019 um and walter said you know you got one more chance <laughs> So I said, and that's when I changed the title to forms of contention, influence in the African American sonic tradition. And I went back and I rewrote the entire book for influence, not rewrote, but I like recast the argument. So he sent it out to one more reader and the reader wrote back and he says, oh my God, this is really interesting. Publish it. (laughs) So finally, Um, uh, and I will say something else as advice. So when you're doing permissions, right, you know, you have like fair use is X amount of work from a poem. Um, And so you don't always have to pay, you know, your copyright permissions. But because a sonnet is 14 lines, and my point was the sonnet, I couldn't, there are no excerpts from sonnets here. So it meant that the dollar amount for the nineteenth, the twentieth century after nineteen twenty seven that I had to pay for permissions was huge. I mean, I probably four thousand dollars now, like I paid a thousand dollars to Gwendolyn Brooks' estate alone. I'm glad to do it, right? You know, why not? But it is expensive, um quoting a whole poem. So I, my advice to, <laughs> to anybody, Don't pick the sonnet, pick a ballad and you can do this. But if you believe in paying poets for what they do and you're working on sonnets, be prepared to spend thousands of dollars in permissions fees.
0: It's interesting to go back to what you were saying about that keyword influence. So what you're kind of saying is like if you have like a a nail that that the architecture can hang on for some readers, that's going to uh, resonate more effectively. Yeah.
1: Well, one of the things, there's a poet, for example, we haven't talked about called Marcus Christian, who's a really interesting poet out of Louisiana, who, um, you know, was was working. I mean, he's a he's good, solid poet, wrote a lot of sonnets. And he sort of pushed back against Claude McKay. The two of them were sort of rivals in a way, but Claude McKay, of course, got very big. And they went back and forth on, you know, um, you know, a lot of poets were just like, I'm getting out of the whole, I'm getting out of Dodge. I'm getting out of the plantation business. I'm not writing about that anymore. And Marcus Christian is like, this is our life, right? This is, you know, I like thinking about growing. I, I, I want to keep talking about plowing and um, the ways that the South and harvest is part of my pastoral history. Right. And, they're influencing each other um, in ways that I, I talk about it a little bit, and there's so much more scholarship there of, of sort of the black pastoral tradition, right? But you know, because of plantation and because of slavery and all, you know, all of that protest, these other traditions are less visible. And, you know, there's a way, um, you know, there's a way, like with Dunbar, in the deserted plantation, where he's seeing those traditions, right, where he, at the end of this, at the beginning of the century, so like 1903, is, he's from Ohio, from Dayton, he's not from the South, he goes touring through the South, and he sees this sort of deserted things, and he sees this history, and he sees, because he spent more time in England, right, he sees a whole different view, And, uh, and we don't, there isn't enough conversation about that literary, like his literary framing, or the way we, we frame these literature, frame this literature. So what happens, like he goes down, is it Hampton, I'm forgetting the college that he goes to that has a photography club. Right. And, um, they say, we want to rewrite, we want you to republish the books, but with some photography we have of things like deserted plantations and about, you know, po- poverty. We, you, you know what it looks like in Mississippi, that there are, time, there are places in Mississippi that could be 1860. Right? And um, the problem is when he publishes, republishes his poems with actual photographs, then you don't, that all literary illusion is lost. You can't read for literary illusion when you actually have a picture of a deserted plantation and young young children playing there. Right. And so um he didn't do his. I mean, it's just a whole different it's a whole different history.
0: Um, I'm gonna ask you to contradict what you just said a few minutes ago, which was is- if um if you hadn't written a book about the sonnet is there another literary form for ah. searching for dissertation topics maybe you can throw them a lifeline here um is is there a book to be written about the african-american villanelle or the african-american yes yes.
1: yes 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 there is um you know one of the things that i discovered um and there's a great book by uh, keith leonard on black formal poetry um but there this field is wide open um for alexandrians um for um uh what are they called? Spenserian sonnets. I think I talk at the end of chapter five and I don't remember all the names of the poets, but some really interesting um, formal poets. It's the Spenserian stanza, the nine stanza, right? The eight iambic pentameter, and then the Alexandrine. Um, really interesting work that does not get read anymore. The other really interesting um, uh, dissertation topic is uh, poets the way black poets uh historically engaged with Native American voices and the Native American story, right so um you know, Edmonia Lewis, the great sculptor, you know, had this whole uh sculpture series on Hiawatha, like as if you know it was a you know when it's just uh, what's his name's Longfellow's poems, but there's a way that um black poets in wanting to be american um, also in uh, brought native american voices and stories into into their works um, and i just would see bits it here and i i didn't i wasn't able to sort of tie it all together um but that that cultural exchange um, between uh, in the 19th century um uh I think it was again i don't remember which hbcu it is um uh that was it was a black college but it was also for native americans so there was a probably over the course of um i think it's hampton um you know brought tribal brought young people from 126 tribes across the country to come and study and you know whatever one thinks of that project to Americanize a generation of Native American college age kids, that was the project. We're gonna bring everybody together and we're gonna become Americans. So a little less concern about tribal heritage and um, how the indigenous plight of indigenous people in America is different than the plight of blacks in America but that's wide open
0: let's speak that into existence let's let's encourage somebody to take that project Please. yeah
1: yeah no it's so interesting
0: um so uh, what are you working on now um do you have a book or article in progress so I'm, like I'm
1: writing a book on uh, on robert hayden it's slow going um but it's just about my reactions to hayden I mean, it's not a scholarly, scholarly book. It's about coming at Hayden, who refused to be part of the Black arts movement, who was cast out, um, really was cast out. And he's Baha'i. And I don't know much you know about the Baha'i faith. Um, So I don't know much about the Baha'i faith, but the sort of tenets of it coming out of um, Zoroastrian tradition and i'm i'm not going to i'm not going to go into it any deeply at all is that you know the, the perfect world the end of the world would have no distinctions of color of race of nationality of ethnicity right we should all be one and that is his faith tradition so you know obviously being a, a black poet was complicating for that religiously at the same time he's writing about his life which is being, you know, a really difficult childhood and adoption and racism and all those things. So part of the tension one sees in um, Hayden is, you know, is exactly what poetry is meant to do, which is you use, you you realize I am not the first person in the world to deal with a whole bunch of complicated things at once. I am going to use this tradition to help me. And so he does. And the fact that he, he studied with Auden, there's so little scholarship on that. And Auden is, you know, a giant. So that's that. And then I'm trying to finish a book now with Skip on a rewriting of his 2002 book, um, The Trials of Phyllis Wheatley, which is a really interesting um, project, uh, long overdue about Skip's, um, famous, uh, as he calls it, tissue of conjecture. When have you read much Wheatley?
0: A, a few poems, a handful. Maybe of poems. You got to read your Wheatley.
1: But at the beginning of her book, um, poems religious and moral, poems on various subjects, religious and moral, uh, seventeen seventy-three, the first book of poems written by an African American or a Black American um, enslaved, formerly enslaved. She was enslaved when it was published. Uh, book of poems um which of course june jordan critiques um there's one of those testimonies at the beginning like we testify that this we we examined uh this girl and she in fact wrote these poems so skip um in many speeches and works and and in this 2002 book sort of imagines, he said, imagine, if you will, what this examination looked like. And so he has brought into reality, this idea of like a seminar table with, you know, George, uh, John Hancock, and all these like famous Boston people in 1772, examining her, what are the questions they would have asked, what would have needed to be the case for all these august 18 people to say, yeah, she wrote it. Right? Did they ask about literary allusions? Did they ask about Apollo? Did they ask about Bible stories? Did they ask about Milton? Did they ask about Pope? Right? So he has this sort of history of of what this was. But so scholarship since two thousand two were like that didn't happen. There's no evidence it happened. It didn't happen. So there's a lot of scholarship piling on skip saying you made this up. And he's like, of course I made it up. I say it's a tissue of conjecture. Like imagine what this thing would have looked like, right? So finally, 20 years later, it's like, okay, let's address this. And you know, the, nobody who's piled on him has offered an alternative to what this test thing that they signed, this attestation means by we examined her and we concluded. Something happened. What that was, who knows?
0: Okay, I'm I'm excited for both of those projects, and and in the meantime, I'm going to read my Wheatley and my Hayden uh, to get prepared. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast, Thomas.
1: Thank you so much. This has been delightful, and and you've got uh, amazing work ahead of you too. So, publish yeah. instead of podcasting too. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.